Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Travis Fisher. Travis, how are you doing today? I'm feeling energetic. Energetic? Yeah. What brings all this energy to you? I don't know. High energy. I, I just had a salad. Is it nuclear energetic? No. No. It's not I don't, nuclear I don't, energetic. I don't think my energy is ever that dense. Do you know, are you, do you consider yourself a liter- literary expert? Do you... Do, do you I'm not an expert on hardly anything, Jack. Uh Because you know what I just did? What? Foreshadowing. Mm. Foreshadowing. I do know what that is. All right. (laughs) That qualifies you you as an expert, then okay, yeah. (laughs) You're a regular Ernest Hemingway. I'm a literary expert, Jack. (laughs) All right. There you go. All right. Now, as has become tradition around here, I want to remind everyone about the Power Hours email account. Travis, why don't you tell us what it is since that's the one thing you provide? Yep. That's all I provide. Please send an email to thepowerhour at heritage.org. I'll tell you what, you're good at that. I'm so good, man. You are good. You every nail time. it every time. Uh, as a reminder- What, we've done like 20 podcasts? 20. I'm, I'm 20 for 20. The only one that has been wrong was the one that I did. Ooh. Yeah. So, hey, thank you for that. So, everyone, give us your input. I promise I will respond or Travis will respond. Someone, it'll be Travis or me, will respond. But we always do. That's how we know what you want to hear. That's how we know if we're doing good, we're doing bad, we're being in the middle. Just let us know. And we will get back to you. So just one more time, Travis, what is that email? The Power Hour at heritage.org. Now, um, you have a new responsibility for this here podcast. Mm. Tell us how we can find this thing. If someone wanted to, if they weren't listening to it right now, but found if they just accidentally came across it? Anywhere you get your podcast. But if you want to do put in some search terms, just do Heritage Power Hour. We're also part of the Herd at Heritage platform, which includes right. other things like events and other podcasts. But really good things like our podcast. Mostly ours. The, pa- the Power Hour. Ours is the brought best. Brought to you weekly. None exactly. of those other ones are brought to you weekly. Exactly. Maybe some of them are. Some Certainly would, ours is. May, maybe they're not as high energy as we are. <laughs> well, I doubt that. High nuclear energy. Mm. All right, enough foreshadowing. So I'm going to level with you folks. Here's the deal. We have two hosts of this podcast. We have Travis, and he's an electricity guy. So we've gone pretty deep a few times on electricity issues. And Travis, do you know what kind of guy I am? You are a nuclear guy. I am a nuclear guy. God, you know me so well. And what does that mean? Well, it means we're going back to the old nuclear well one more time. Not one last time, one more time. Here's the good news. We've already talked about how awesome nuclear is. We've talked about nuclear regulation and nuclear safety. Today, we're going to hit on a totally different aspect of nuclear energy. We're going to talk about the nuclear industry. Now, not necessarily the reactors or the technology, but probably some of the technology or the the role that nuclear can play in providing for our energy needs, though we might touch on that as well. But rather, what we're going to focus on today is the underlying industry that makes all of that possible. We want to talk about the rise of the global dominance of America's nuclear industry, where we are today, and what the future holds, at least potentially. 
We want to talk about why a robust domestic nuclear industry is so important to the United States, to U.S. standing internationally. Now, Travis, if there was just an organization dedicated to this, is this issue, someplace that focused on the entire spectrum of nuclear infrastructure issues. If only. If only. Well, Travis, today's your lucky day. Today's all of your lucky day, because guess what? We got it. There is one. It's the United States Nuclear Infrastructure Council. Now, the Nuclear Infrastructure Council is an awesome organization. I have worked with them for years. Back in the day, when I was sort of just establishing myself in the nuclear policy business, then president of NIC, that's what us in the, uh, the business call it for short, NIC, U.S. NIC, uh, David Blee would invite me to speak at their events, and I always very much appreciated that. Now, I should mention, uh, sadly, David unexpectedly passed away a few years ago, and that was not just a great loss for, for, for Nick, but really for the nuclear industry and for America. David was just an awesome, unique dude, and I am grateful for, for, for what he did for me, and, and certainly that's just a small part of what he did for, for everyone. Um, I'll mention one other name, Ed Davis, who sits on U.S. Nick's board. He remains one of the people I rely on to this day to make me smarter about nuclear issues. If I have a, a question about nuclear energy, especially if it falls into the realm of nuclear waste, but really anything nuclear, Ed Davis is the guy. He's also a, a, a big part of what Nick, Nick does. In fact, Ed would be, if I had a Mount Rushmore of nuclear experts, Ed would be on that Mount Rushmore for sure. I'm trying to imagine what that looks like. It would be good looking. It would, be pretty, it would be pretty cool. It would be good looking. Now, today, however, we don't just have some Nick board member, but we have the recently minted president and CEO of the U.S. Nuclear Infrastructure Council, Todd Abrajano. Did I say that right? You did. All right. Thank, thank goodness. And can I still call you newly minted? Well, uh, as of today, we are... About six months in to, my, right. to my role, so I feel like I'm settling in, but uh, I may have a, a I may not be perfectly mint anymore. But right. well, uh, six month veteran of the U.S. Nuclear Infrastructure Council, Todd Abrajano. Now, welcome, Todd. Welcome to the Power Ca the Power Hour. Thanks, Jack. Glad to be here. And if I if I can just uh, we actually changed the name of the organization before I came on, but it's been a while now. It's now the U.S. Nuclear Industry Council. Is it? I'm so it sorry. It is. But that's okay. A lot of people still think we're the infrastructure. Do, do the cool kids still call it Nick? Everybody calls it Nick. Though. All right. So I got that part right. <laughs> you did. So the U.S. Nuclear Industry Council, I stand corrected. I go on your website all the it, it, it probably says industry. And I, in my brain, I read infrastructure. It, uh, you would be surprised how many people still call it the okay. nuclear infrastructure. Well, I'll tell you one person that won't be this guy. All right. Now, as has become tradition around here, we don't just bring our listening, listening audiences some chump off the street to talk about this, these issues. We bring the absolute best in the nation, and Todd certainly fits that bill. Todd has a long, distinguished career in both the private and public sectors. A couple of highlights include founding the public relations firm Turning Point Public Relations. And before that, perhaps more importantly to this issue, maybe not, I don't know, he held a number of senior positions in the Trump administration's Department of Commerce including the department's White House liaison and top advisor to Wilbur Ross. In 2018, he transitioned to the U.S. Trade and Development Agency, where he ultimately served as the CEO and head of agency. Once again, Todd, welcome to the Power Hour. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Travis. Great to be here. Um, really appreciate the opportunity. So let's start with, um, tell us about Nick. 
the nuclear industry council. I guess the first thing we learned is not it's got a new name. Yeah, well, you know, Nick has been around for uh, for quite a long time, and it's it's had a number of different iterations. It started out as the U.S. Transportation or Transport Council, uh, and was focused mostly on the transportation of of radioactive materials. Uh, and then it sort of morphed into the Infrastructure Council, and they took on uh, a broader role. And now, finally, today, as the U.S. Nuclear Industry Council, uh, we are focused on basically everything advanced nuclear and the entire supply chain uh, that surrounds it. So, um, I don't think this is a touchy question, but I'll ask: how How are you different than the Nuclear Energy Institute? So. Uh, NEI, Nuclear Energy, or Nuclear Energy Institute, uh, are actually very, very close collaborators with us. Uh, they're members of our organization, uh, and we work together on quite a few things. But the, the the folks at NEI are really focused on the current operating fleet and utilities here in the United States. And so, you know, there are now almost 94 reactors operating. Uh, we just got to get the last one fired up down at Vogel. But uh, that's really what their focus is. Our focus is sort of that Gen 3 advanced reactor and everything Gen 4, uh, mm-hmm. and then all of the supply chain that, that really su- supports that. And so uh, we have some utility members at NIC, uh, but certainly not as many as NEI does, and, and, and they're really not our focus. Our, our focus is the vendors and the reactor developers that are, are really bringing forward the new technology. So the, the industry. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Um, now, you mentioned who you were represent like how how big is your membership like what how how would you explain who is part of US NIC yeah so we've got uh, we've got over 80 members and growing uh, many of them are advanced reactor developers uh, but really we've got uh, a, a much broader swath as I said we've got some utilities we've got some academic institutions that have nuclear programs and uh, that are out there teaching the next generation of nuclear engineers uh, and then we've got a lot of uh, sort of other non-governmental organizations that are members. Uh, many of the national labs are members, and um, you know the rest are just supply chain vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that you like? What what is it that you're trying to accomplish? What is the what do you get up in the morning and like? This is what we're going to do today well, or this year. You know, as far, obviously, for being in the nuclear industry, we want to see the nuclear industry succeed. And so as the years go by, as these new technologies, especially Gen 4, SMR, small modular reactors and micro reactors, become proven technologies, we want to see these types of technologies really take their place in terms of electric generation here in the United States, but also globally. And so that's, that's my goal of waking up every day, is to make sure that we have the policies in place, we have the legislation in place uh, that are, is going to pr- help promote this industry. Uh, and we have the investment in place, whether it's public investment or whether it's private investment. And a lot of what we do, this is one of the member groups that I didn't talk about. We've got a lot of private equity companies that are also members of the organization. And, and a big thing for us is trying to figure out how we can get more private investment into the industry. So that's really my goal every day. How can we make this industry strong and how can we make it better so that eventually we, we can see the, the percentage of nuclear generation as we approach net zero uh, 2050, mm-hmm. go from where we are now to potentially 20, 25% globally of, uh, of, of generation. I would just say, uh, from my, from my perspective, I agree with everything you said. I want to achieve everything you just said. I don't care about net zero. We ain't hitting net zero, but nuclear energy is still awesome and we should still pursue it. And it still has a bajillion benefits other than 
uh, net zero. I just I, I couldn't have that floating out there without at least a little comment just on my behalf. No, no, I, and I totally understand. <laughs> but you know, as as we look at what's happening in the world right now, hey, I get everybody's it. trying I to get hit it. these goals. And I think the reason why we're seeing sort of a new nuclear renaissance is because everybody's trying to hit these goals across the globe, whether we hit them or not. I'm appreciative of the fact that people are actually thinking about this and puts us as a nuclear industry in a position to be successful moving forward. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate as well that regardless of what I think about CO2 or much less uh, trying to reach net zero, um, which is the, I'll, for lack of a better description, I'll just say a, a political goal to achieve uh, a neutral carbon dioxide production that people around the world have put out there is what they're trying to move toward. Yeah. Um, so like I, I appreciate that that has been the hook to put nuclear back on, on, on the map. Um, and well, we're seeing, Oh, go ahead. It, it's about getting converts too. Right. So if you were to just talk to the average person, like, well, why do you support the you know expansion of new nukes, I think a lot of people hi historically would just be nerds like us, Jack. I think this, there's a new generation of folks saying the reason I care is because yeah. of the net zero, because I care about climate and all that stuff. Now that's not for us, but that is a big draw for other people. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and certainly, there's there... now I was going to say there's nothing wrong with it, but we can leave that for a different. There debate. might be something for wrong with it. Leave that for that's another not, podcast. That's not what we're here talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> What we are talking about, though, is you, you mentioned, Todd, that there's stuff going on. Can you sort of give us a lay of the land of what's going on in new nuclear? And also, you mentioned a couple of times, uh, one of the things we, we try to do for our audience is whenever new terms are brought up, go back to them and define them. You mentioned Gen 3, Gen 4, Gen 3 plus. What, what does that mean? Then give us sort of a lay of the land of what's going on in nuclear. Especially sure. in Gen 3 plus Gen 4 world. Sure. So Gen 3, Generation 3 nuclear uh, reactors are typically what is thought of as what you see out there now, sort of the large, big gigawatt scale light water reactors. Uh, generation 3 plus uh, have a, a couple of advantages to this, the normal Generation 3. One, uh, they have better safety systems and they're more economical. And so still at the same scale, basically, gigawatt scale, but but increased efficiency economically and, and safety-wise. Would then, you call the Vogel reactors Gen 3 Plus? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, folks, that's we have 92 reactors out there operating right now. They're all, uh, well, now 93. We, have <laughs> we had 92. Correct. That would be called uh, the, the, the Gen 3. And as we've talked about on the podcast, uh, in, in, in uh, Southern Company, Vogel has two reactors – that are new, being bu newly built. One has recently come online. They have another one coming on. That's Gen 3 Plus. Correct. Yes. And so Gen 4 is now taking those Gen 3 Plus reactors and, and basically shrinking them. Um, and so if, if you've got a light water reactor, anything sort of around 300 megawatts or less would be considered a, a small reactor, uh, a Gen 4 reactor. But then there's also small modular reactors that are even smaller than that. And then you can even get into micro reactors, which are, you know, even smaller than small modular reactors. And so basically anything under 300 megawatts would be considered uh, a Gen 4 reactor. And is that um, regardless of technology? 
It is regardless of technology because there are a lot of different technologies out there, a lot of different designs. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Nuclear Energy Agency associated with the OECD just came out earlier this year with uh, an SMR, Small Modular Reactor Dashboard. Uh, their, their first iteration of this looks at, I think, just around 20, maybe just over 20 different designs. They're planning to put out another version of this at the end of the summer, which will, I think, look at potentially 50 of 50 different designs globally. And by the end of the year, they're going to put out a, a final version, which is going to look at uh, around 80 or just over 80 different designs. So globally, there's all kinds of different technologies, all kinds of designs. Uh, and it's going to be interesting, I think, to see uh, which one of the, you know which of these designs become successful moving forward. I mean, you know, right now we're supportive of all of our member companies that are out there doing this type of work. Uh, but eventually, I think the market is going to uh, determine you know who the winners and losers are. Um, so, you know, ideally, I think for our membership, I would love to see everybody successful. Uh, but with eighty plus designs currently, and uh, you know, who knows how many more into the future. I think it's going to be difficult to, to be able to support that many different designs and that many, with with the different types of applications that are going to be needed. So we'll see. Uh, I I don't know. I wish I had I wish I had my genie hat on and could tell you who was gonna who was gonna be successful into the future. But uh, there's a lot of different designs out there. Um, do you have a sense of how? So you said there are eighty some designs that that, that people are considering. Do you have any sense of um, how many of them are American? designs how, how how is america stacking up yeah so in this right now we have uh we have uh, dozens of different designs currently um you know when i say that number 80 plus you know that does take into account all the designs globally so you know china's a big competitor russia's a big competitor they have their own designs that they've been working on for years um south korea yeah, there's a number of countries that are that are involved in this space, and so yeah, that that accounts for the the global number eighty plus. But there are dozens of designs here in the United States right now. Um, I don't know if you mentioned this term. I don't know if it's it's not a term that I particularly like, but it's a term we used before and certainly been bandied about this time around, which is nuclear renaissance. And um, folks who 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 listen to this podcast who follow this issue know in the mid 2000s there was an alleged nuclear renaissance about to occur right and there were um you know congress did a bunch of things um the bush administration did a bunch of things um there were some regulatory reforms that happened in the 90s that were supposed to come to fruition and there was all this excitement you you saw all kinds of ha things happening in the private sector you saw these vertically integrated um consortiums you saw investment being made and actual construction being done um, for for different things. Um, you had the, the that was where the two Vogel reactors came from. Right. You had um, all this. You had uh, I think thirty one uh, new permit applications for reactors going to the NRC, and then. Phew, all gone. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, just a couple of days ago, I was in Indianapolis um, sitting on a panel with the uh, the folks at ANS. And John Kotek from NEI was sitting right next to me. And he was talking about sort of this exact same thing, the the, the previous nuclear renaissance. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to steal his line because it was so great. But he he, he said, we got fracked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, re that, that renaissance came along and, and then fracking started happening and natural gas started pouring out. Uh, of the United States, uh, and it was incredibly, incredibly less expensive than you know the LCOE on on nuclear. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you're right. What, what LCOE? What's that? Uh, levelized cost of electricity. Okay. So, 
So, so the cost of it, the cost to build it. Right. Or the, the cost to build and operate it. Exactly. And so, you know, it was, it was, it was a whole lot cheaper uh, to frack, draw natural gas out of the earth uh, and use that to generate electricity than it was to build gigawatt scale nuclear plants because they cost billions and billions and billions of dollars. So why is this time going to be different? So, uh, For, well, first, let me, do, uh, would you say that we are at the precipice of a nuclear renaissance or whatever we're calling? Oh, and also, if I'm building my, um, just so you know, Travis, if I'm building my nuclear Mount Rushmore, I have Ed Davis, John Kotek definitely has a place on my Mount Rushmore. Okay. Just so you know that. Nice. Well, you've got to leave room for Admiral Rickover. He's your favorite. Uh, I haven't decided. I have to have, these are people that I have personal interactions with and the utmost respect for. Oh, this is a very Jack-specific thing. That's my okay. Mount Rushmore. Oh, okay, okay. You, you've, got, you've got my agreement on Ed Davis, though. He's been great. He's, he, he serves, as you said, on our board as our treasurer, uh, but he also serves as uh, our, our fellow on our fuel cycle working yeah. group. So yeah. Ed's, Ed's a wealth of information. He's been involved in the organization for a very yeah. long time, and, and I love him. Yeah. So I, I interrupted you for something for nonsense. <laughs> so um, well, I, I, I kind of want to jump on this question, too, because I think the shale boom is a sort of a U.S. phenomenon. So is the renaissance, if we take a global view at this, does the global look, do you come out a lot better there because a lot of the shale resource, even if it's in the ground in other countries, it's not being exploited. It's not being produced the way it is here. Yeah, that's So is is the scale of the global energy challenge, does that contribute to basically you you can expand globally, even if if you can't dominate the U.S. market right now? Yeah, look, while the United States has only really built two new reactors, uh, in this century, if you look across the globe, there have been many, many more gigawatt-scale nuclear reactors being built. And so, while the Renaissance, the previous Renaissance, may not have taken off here in the United States, nuclear has certainly been growing globally. All that being said, do I think there is a new Renaissance happening now in nuclear? Um, you know, whatever you want to call it, I think we're in a really good space right now. Um, all of the things that happened previously that you discussed are all happening again. There's incredible investment. Uh, there's bipartisan agreement on something, believe it or not, on the Hill, and it, and it just happens to be nuclear. Uh, there have been a number of bills passed over the last several years to support the industry. If you look at this current session of Congress, I can't even I can't even count how many bills uh, have come out in support of the of the nuclear industry this session. Uh, every time I turn around, there's new bills. Uh, I just I just got an email from Representative Donald's office the other day. He's got five more bills coming out soon. So uh, they just keep coming. And and for me and my organization, I'm I'm very thankful that that's happening. But all of the things that we need to be able to have an industry that's supported both by the public sector and the private sector are happening right now. And so why is that? Uh, I think that. You know, there are a number of reasons. Obviously, we discussed one earlier, but um, you know, people are starting to realize even, you know, even wherever you stand on fossil fuels, they're eventually going to run out at some point. And so we have to figure out whether it's uh, by, you know, legislation or, you know, government mandate or whatever the reason is, we've got to figure out a, a way to generate firm 24-7 baseload power uh, that is not related to fossil fuels. At some point, it's going to be gone, and we've got to be able to continue to to have an electric grid that works. Well, not not to debate, but to have a good discussion. Right. I would, uh, and, and and remember the context. I love, like, I want nuclear to be as successful as anyone in the world. But I would argue that's not why. We may run out, 
Well, we will never run out of, of conventional fuels like gas, oil, and coal because it will become too expensive. And so it's not like you have a gallon in, or a, a, an amount. It just, it, the economics will make it such that we don't – it doesn't make economic sense anymore. Sure. The thing that you said that, uh, you know, made me, you know, shiver a little bit, not sure, you know, retract, was you said by legislation or government mandate. That worries me. Because I think I think that nuclear has so much to bring, and that the natural evolution of the market has already seen nuclear be successful, and that it would allow it to come into the market in an organic way, where that success could be founded on something sustainable and real. Yeah, and oh, just, just real, 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 real quick, yep. and um, and whenever whenever that process gets undermined by people trying government here to help i'm afraid that it undermines the the foundations that would allow it for long-term success i I hear what you're saying and i don't disagree with you um and and certainly with respect to the united states i'm in complete agreement with you I, i don't think we should be mandating the things that we've mandated all of that being said though we can't control what happens in other countries and we're on the train now and the train is barreling forward and Countries across the the world are implementing these types of policies where yeah. they're phasing out fossil fuel generation. And yeah. so that being the reality, that's, I think, a big part of yeah. why we're getting this nuclear renaissance. Yeah, I so, agree with that. Yeah. So, uh, so where and we we're are, not anti – America's not anti-nuclear. So right. you combine those things and it creates an opportunity for sure. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, you're right. Uh, we, we are not anti-nuclear. And as I, as I said, you know, this is one of the few bipartisan issues currently on the Hill. And so I'm very thankful for that. You know, there's, there's a very small percentage now of, you know, the general public that is considered anti-nuclear. There have been a number of polls and surveys released recently, and the number hovers somewhere between like 15 and 18 percent. Mm-hmm. The other 82 percent are either fully supportive of, of nuclear and utilizing it more um, or don't really have an opinion about it. And so I think we're in a really good spot, but the vast, the vast majority of Americans are very supportive of the nuclear industry and want to see more nuclear energy generation in the future. So do you think, just for the purposes of this conversation, calling this time around a, a new nuclear renaissance, are you confident that it will go forward this time, that it's sustainable, that we will have more success? I think we will. I, I absolutely think we will. Look, we're, we're going to have challenges along the way, just like any other industry um, that's that's trying to move forward. But I, I certainly think that we have hit an inflection point with respect to how people are looking at, at nuclear. Uh, and in my mind, it's all very positive. I have a question. What, what's, what's the most surprising application? So I'm thinking of things like if people want to decarbonize shipping and things like that, we we tend to use just a lot of diesel fuel, which again, Jack and I have no problem with that. We love diesel fuel, but I, use it all. But this but is the, my, this but, is this is my weak point. How one day I admitted that I'm okay. Oh no, you don't like diesel. I love. Is that I, where you're going? I, I, I love <laughs> nuclear propulsion. I love naval. Well, that's what or, I'm saying. There's so there's so much propulsion on ships. There's so much shipping, and ships have become so large. That that's a question. Like, at what point does that become a a possibility. Well, I, I think it's a possibility now. And actually, it's interesting you say that because I just had a conversation a couple of days ago when I was in Indianapolis with the folks that work at Core Power. And that's really what they're focused on right now is 
figuring out how we can utilize nuclear propulsion for the shipping industry. That's great. And, and my my former boss at the Commerce Department, Wilbur Ross, uh, is you know obviously uh, heavily involved in shipping, and you know it would be great to see uh, it would be great to see that transition happen. Absolutely. You know we've had uh, nuclear shipping commercial ships before. Go on. One, the NS Savannah. It operated for a number of years. Um, ultimately, the economics didn't work out because it wasn't as large as it needed to be, um, but it operated successfully. Germany, I believe, had one, and I think it was Germany. Uh, there were two other commercial na- uh, nuclear ships. So I have a regulatory question as a follow-up. If someone were to do that now, who oversees that, and what's the regulatory barrier to that? Because that's that's a theme. In, every, every time I talk to a pro-nuke person, they're like, ah, these regs. you got to have regulatory reform. Who even oversees the propulsion on shipping? So I, I think it would be the NRC. It would, right? it, would, it would certainly be the NRC. There, there may be other entities that would have to get involved, but uh, certainly the, the NRC regulates everything nuclear. So, And if you're going from country A to country B, do you need the approval of both countries? How does that work? That's a, that's an interesting question, and mm-hmm. one I don't know the answer to. You would probably need, um, in fact, this might have been one of the issues with the Savannah now that I think about it, but um, despite me saying this on something that's going on the internet, don't quote me on it. <laughs> um, well, we don't do a transcript, so that's <laughs> right. helpful. I believe that the inability to port as freely as it otherwise could might have been another one of the reasons uh. that um, the economics didn't work as well as they had hoped. I would, I, would, I would imagine the NRC would work with the IAEA and, and, and other countries to try to draft some sort of agreement. But I mean, look, the bottom line is if, if folks really want to re- get to net zero and reduce CO2, there's no question but that nuclear propulsion for shipping has to be top of your list. I mean, we, don't, we generally don't talk about this in this podcast because we're an energy and environment, not a national security one. But we have over 100 or around 100 small modular reactors floating around the seas right, right. now That's right. on the U.S. Navy and have been doing so for a long time extraordinarily safely. In fact, and we have mentioned this before, you, uh, the Rickover went from uh, g- getting approval to build a s- nuclear submarine to getting that submarine underway in under five years. And no one had ever built one of these before. Like from it being like an idea in some dudes in some person's head, I mean, like, Rickover, go build this and him being like, all right, give me the... The slide rule and, you know, a couple of engineers. And five years later, those were the good water. old days when we used to build stuff, you know? <laughs> that, that is what makes me so confident about U.S. nuclear energy that if we could get out of our own way, like when people say you can't build them on time or on budget, yeah, we have before. Or Amer- I, 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 I'm, I am um, committing the sin that I accuse others of all the time, using the word we when I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, that makes Jack a communist. That's what Jack Spencer's known for, being a communist. Anyway, um, yeah, it's all there. Like, it's all the pieces are there. We just got to go off and do it. Now, I want to uh, change gears a little bit. You had, did, did we answer your question, Travis? I might have interrupted, didn't I? I had a follow-up, but I'm also conscious of time. Let's just be quick about this. Is there... Like what application should I be should I be asking about that I just have no concept of? I mean, I'm aware of the uh, the Dow and X Energy deal. Yeah. So there's an industrial application, the process heat yep. and the the steam and and power load, all that stuff. There's the industrial application. 
Is there something else out there that I, would just completely blow me away that I have no idea about? Uh, using nuclear to produce clean hydrogen. Oh, yeah. Uh, desalinating water. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's incredible applications, not just, you know, space propulsion. Um, so it, across the board, you know, nuclear really is sort of the one energy uh, generation uh, that can do so much aside from just generating electricity. Uh, and I think that you know, energy generation, electric generation is going to be key for nuclear moving forward. But I actually think the markets are actually going to be bigger for industrial heat processes. I mean, you look at, uh, you look at as you mentioned, the Dow deal, that's just one company. I mean, you've got how many industrial manufacturers in this country and globally that uh, are concerned about decarbonization, and they're going to have to figure out a way to do it somehow. And small modular microreactors are going to be probably one of the best ways for them to do that. And so I think the market's going to be even larger there. And aside from decarbonization, because I, oh, I, I just can't let myself allow the future of the industry to be hinged on that and that alone. For these big industrial companies, you get energy production at very predictable prices for very long periods of time. So even if, even if there are, uh, if there's some alternative that is moderately less expensive in the time, in the, the increases and decreases over time. That's right. They have to deal with that. With nuclear, you can get this stu- energy affordably over a long period of time. Yeah, if you know, if you, I mean, if you're, if you're a guy, if you're a CFO of a Fortune 500 company or CEO, and you're looking for something that is going to give you consistent pricing over a long period of time, nuclear is certainly the way to go. I mean, yeah. It's much better than having to, you know, have a, you know, have a peak that can't be fulfilled and have to go out and, you know, buy energy off the market at spot pricing. Uh, yeah, over the long term, it's going to be much more cost effective, I think. Yeah, most certainly. So that's why I always I, I think that there's a lot of reasons to do it. Well, and I, I asked about the shipping application because the power density is unmatched. It can't be matched. I don't think physically incapable of being matched by other fuels. It's like head and shoulders above everything else. So when it comes to things like putting it on a ship, you've seen it with the Navy nukes and all that. I mean, it's it it really is a a, a special type of of commercially of use. though it would be a little bit different because on the Navy nuclear propulsion the um, uranium fuel is highly enriched, so they're able to operate those reactors for 20 and 30 years at, at, a, at a time, depending on if it's submarine or aircraft carrier. That's right. The um, A commercial nuclear propulsion, I would imagine, would be something far less than that. So they would, I would guess, um, depending on the technology that's ultimately used, would require a um, a more frequent refueling cycle. Than what the Navy nukes do, yeah, but, but still, you're, you're be... falling into the trap that we fell into the last podcast with the like comparing it to itself. <laughs> like, yes, um, commercial nuke would be less power dense than military nuke, but still way but power dense. The relevant comparison is to diesel fuel, yeah, which right. is still, I mean, head and shoulders above every hydrocarbon, which I hate to admit because I love hydrocarbons. I I agree with you. I just wanted to make the clarification. Comparing it to the such a of, stickler, Jack, with all the oh details. God, okay, details, details. You talked, Todd, about um, this international aspect of it. The U.S. used to dominate the global nuclear industry, but it, now, when I think about the commercial nuclear industry, I think probably France first. I don't know if that's legit or not, but they they sort of, I think, sit atop the the we are nuclear um, heap. I think South Korea. I think Japan. Um, 
those are sort of the countries in the, the West that I think of. And then China and Russia. Right. And maybe India. Um, where does the U.S. stack in, in, in global, US, global nuclear industry capability, whatever, today? So I, I'm going to come at this from two different perspectives. I think from a, from a Gen 3 plus perspective, I think we are, um, I, I, I think we're very competitive. And I think you see that in what just happened in Poland. Um, you know, Poland just signed a deal with Westinghouse to build a number of their AP-1000s. And they have the potential to build even more. So I think the initial deal was for three. They could potentially build another three. Uh, and whether those are three more AP-1000s or they utilize another type of technology or maybe there is a consortium between, you know, the United States and another country to get those other three built. Uh, but the point is the United States is competitive there. Moving over to Gen 4, uh, I think we are we're going to be exceptionally competitive Uh Right now, I think my biggest my biggest concern is China and Russia um, are a bit ahead of us in terms of proving the technology, for one. Bigger problem is that the companies that are trying to sell in China and Russia, the companies that are trying to sell their technology internationally and export it are state-owned enterprises that uh, are able to offer sort of a turnkey deal. They bring in the technology, they bring in the construction, they bring in the financing, uh, and sometimes they'll even operate the plant after the fact. And so, and they're able to do this uh, at, at a very, very low cost compared to where the United States is at now because they are not subject to OECD guidelines. They can bring in the financing at a much lower rate. Uh, and, and look, I served in the Trump administration, I traveled all over the world. Um, I've been to you know, every continent except for Antarctica and Australia, and I've seen the kind of uh, problems that arise when countries make deals and partner with, say, China and, and that type of debt trap diplomacy. But it, it's it's attractive when you have no infrastructure and they're coming to the table with a package that's basically ready to go in a box. You open it up and they don't have to, the country has to do nothing uh, except pay the bill when it comes due. So I, I'm curious, I, I don't expect the Chinese Communist Party to be sort of the paragon of transparency on all this stuff, but is it possible to know to what degree those projects are subsidized by the government? So it's it would seem cheaper to the purchasing country, but is it a strategic thing? It's well, subsidized think, by the country that's selling it? Well, we've, cer we've certainly seen that happen uh, with China and their, their Belt and Road Initiative, where they come in, undercut the financing, uh, potentially subsidize it uh, early on or utilize the deal um, to get something else strategically that they really want, like a military base, for example, um, which is why they've been so heavily invested in, in building ports across the globe. And so, you know, it's uh, it's it's difficult, but it's it's not something that can't be overcome. And that's why a lot of our focus, as I said earlier, is is trying to figure out how we can get more private investment more private financing so that we can start coming to the table with something that's almost as good as what China and Russia are offering right now. And then when countries or companies overseas take a look and start comparing, well, you know, apples to apples, oranges to oranges, how does this, how does this proposal look? You know, we may not be as cheap, but ultimately there's going to be a big question in, in the decision maker's mind in terms of who would I rather partner with for mm -hmm. the long term? 
if I partner with the United States, are they going to want something from us that is going to benefit them strategically? Or are they just coming to the table with a with a, a fairly good deal for a piece of infrastructure that we want to build? You know, the United States, when, when United States companies and technology providers are, are making uh, proposals and, and, and putting in proposals for bids, we're not coming in as the U.S. of A. We're not, it's not the U.S. government. It's a private entity. And so, you know, we don't have the same types of, uh, of issues that a China or a Russia may have because they're going to want something strategic. Mm-hmm. We're not, all we're doing is selling our tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be, a, I think, a big part of the decisions that those decision makers are going to have to make. And, and, you know, I may be biased, obviously, uh, as a U.S. citizen and, and somebody who runs the U.S. Nuclear Industry Council. Uh, but I think when, you know, push comes to shove, those decision makers are going are, are gonna to come to the realization that, it's better to go with the United States technology because there aren't all of the other issues that have to be dealt with. And look, at the end of the day, uh, if they go with China and they can't pay their bill, what's going to happen? That piece of technology is going to be basically taken over by China. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States isn't going to come in and uh, and steal your nuclear plant. Well, and, and the, having those strings attached might not have seemed like a bad idea when we thought that these regimes could be peaceful. It's showing itself, though. Russia is not peaceful China is increasingly that's right unpeaceful so it's the kind of question like at what point did the strings attached start to matter I think I think we're getting to that point already I, I agree with you and you know, to that point I, I've heard so many people say this now over the last several months uh, you know that the war in Ukraine is the best thing that's ever happened to the nuclear industry mm-hmm. and, and, and every time I hear it it just it makes me shudder um, but only because it's Partially true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would love, I would, I would love to be able to see the nuclear industry stand on its own and be successful on its own without something like that happening. But you know, countries around the world are starting to realize, you know, we have to protect our own energy security. We have to pr- mm-hmm. protect our own national security. And getting into bed with the Chinese or the Russians is probably not going to help us do that. And yeah. so, I think that's another big part of why we're going to see U.S. technology in the nuclear space uh, I, really take off. I completely agree. I think that um, you know, that's why I, not to come back to it again, but I don't get wrapped up in the CO2 thing because I really believe with the right policies that, uh, that that nuclear can be very successful without being attached to that. But I get it, and I'm not, I'm not going to harp on that. One of the things that I think is a big problem for, for U.S. companies when they go out and compete, especially with the Russians and the Chinese, but even the French and the Japanese, not really the Japanese as much, but the inability to provide full-spectrum nuclear services, yeah. that we can't provide fuel on the front end. We, we, we provide world-class um, tech, world-class, um, if you're trying to set up a regulatory structure, despite my critique of our own regulatory structure, if I'm starting from ground zero, and if 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 my colleagues are forcing me to get nuclear regulation at all, um, I'm going to go to the U.S. To, to get some help. And we provide no waste management, not from a not a, in a commercial commercial way. I'm curious from from your perspective, Todd, and from you, the is that something that you see as a big issue? Like, would we would American companies be more successful if we could provide full spectrum services? And how do we get there? I think so. I, I, I think that's a, a really good observation and an excellent point. And Russia does that now. You know, they'll provide everything, as I said. It's a, you know, yeah. basically a full suite. Uh, they'll provide the fuel. They'll provide the technology. They will take the spent fuel back into their own country 
after it's been utilized. So, I mean, it, it, if we could do that in the United States, it, it certainly would make us more competitive. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the thing with Russia, they also build good reactors. You know, un, unlike China, this might not be fair, but I feel like buying a Chinese reactor is like going on Amazon and buying a reactor. It's like, <laughs> I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they're fine. Um, but if I'm building a reactor and I don't care about the geopolitical uh, aspects of it, I'm going to call Russia way before I call China. Um, I mean, hell, or heck, you can see what's going on in, in Ukraine, right. that those reactors are built really well. Yeah. Um, as long as it's not the, the, the VVERs that, and you don't have a bunch of commies running it, yeah. which is what they had in Chernobyl. But the, yeah. the, the light water reactors are, are they've, pretty they've gotten, good. They've gotten much better. Yeah. Uh, and look, I'm not trying to talk up the competition. Here, yeah, but... no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not, I would not buy a, a Russian <laughs> reactor. I'm only, uh, here's what I'm saying, that we should not, here's what I'm saying. I too often hear people say, oh, Russia can't build a reactor. Oh, we need to, you, you, the, the Russian reactors are no good. Like, downplay the quality. Yeah. And that we should not do that. We, 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 should, we shouldn't. We need, we, need to, we need to look at them as very serious competitors. Yes. That, that's the point I'm trying to make. Maybe not articulately, maybe not in a way that uh, I should have. But that was what I was trying to get yeah. to. That, and I agree with you. That we need to be able to do that. And we need to be able to take the waste and do something with it. And I think that um, there's a very clear path for that. Um, but can we, you, can we need you to buy a waste management system on Amazon.com too? I'm going to go on Amazon now to try to figure out what what exactly is available. If you find one there, let me know, please. <laughs> I, bet, I bet you could go on Alibaba and find one. Oh, man. <laughs> so I, I have a question. But before we get away from this Ukraine-Russia scenario, I want to let's talk about the the one country that makes no sense to me. And I'm pretty sure part of my heritage is from Germany. Um, so I hate to trash them too much. But as a country, as a, you know, the politics of Germany right now, especially in their energy policy, what kind of sense does it make? So they've gone from, they had a nuclear fleet. They decided to shut that down. They decided to maintain the decision to shut down the nuclear fleet in the face of essentially being held over the barrel by Russia over gas imports. That's right. How in the world, especially in this, you know, in the context of, you, you said the war in Ukraine was was good for the industry. Generally, I, I agree with that. Um, it's obviously an unfortunate event, but it shined a light on a lot of important global problems. What's going on in Germany? Make, make Germany make sense to me. I, I wish I could, Travis. Uh, unfortunately, I can't. I, I, don't, I don't know how, if I'm the leader of Germany, I don't know how I look at what's happening all around me, um, I, and when I look at sort of what our own internal energy generation looks like, what our imports look like, and where they're coming from, I, I, I can't for the life of me figure out how they make a decision to take nuclear off the table. Um, it just it makes absolutely no sense. Hubris and arrogance, and I mean that sincerely. They they could not. They for so long said we don't need nuclear. We're anti-nuclear. The 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 whole anti-actual nuclear, like nuclear weapons movement, was always very strong in Germany. That, as it did here, transitioned into an anti-nuclear power movement, and they would. And, right. and now all those people are now running the place, so they need to accept that they were wrong, and they're not willing to do that. They would rather throw their country. Well, they don't need to throw their country anywhere because they'll just import uh, coal and nuclear 
from other Or places. this is my favorite thing just because the irony of it. They will move existing wind turbines to be able to mine the coal underneath it <laughs> before they decide to build a new nuclear reactor. That's just, I don't know. I don't know what explains that. But you know, I, I, I ask everybody because it doesn't make any sense Did that to me. actually happen? That actually happened. <laughs> they had to move wind I didn't, turbines. I did not know that, but that's that's crazy. I, I'll say this. You know, even in the United States, though, as anti-nuclear as Germany may have been then and may still be now, even in the United States, we're seeing that perception shift. Yeah. Um, and it's because we've got decades upon decades of empirical data now showing just exactly how safe nuclear energy generation is. Um, you know, we, we, we've got these three sort of big accidents that have happened. But when you extrapolate how much energy has been generated by nuclear overall uh, and how many accidents there have been, it's, it's very safe. And if you look at the number of injuries and deaths that have happened because of nuclear energy generation, it's, it's infinitesimally small. Like it's almost completely non-existent. And if you take the filthy soves out of the equation, That's right. um, you are down to zero. That's right. That's right. So, you know, I, I don't know what's going on in Germany, Travis, but thankfully people here in the United States have finally are finally starting to get it. Right. Um, the dumb point I was just trying to make is that the, Rus the, the communi communist Russia in Chernobyl is where the deaths happened. Yeah. There were no deaths at Fukushima. There were no deaths at Three Mile Island. Well, certainly not from not from the nuclear oh, yeah, yeah. accident. That, I mean, that, there, people died from the tsunami yes. and all of that. But that's what I'm uh, yeah. to clarify. There were no deaths as a result of radiation exposure due to the accidents at the Fukushima Daiichi that's right. nuclear power plant. That's right. Um, not only that, but the environmental degradation that was alleged was not nearly as much as what. Um, folks thought it w argued that it would be, or even act as if it currently is. Yeah, I think um, you know I, if you were to look at it today, um, uh, if if you were small country X and you were looking at the at nuclear generation for your country today, I think the data is out there that overwhelmingly proves that nuclear energy generation is one of the, if not the most safe ways to generate electricity in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And to put even a finer point on it, the all of the things that we were originally told, um, or the, the, like, like a nuclear reactor blowing up or people being exposed to radiation, you know, none of those are, it turns out, are dangerous. But also the things... And that's, and that's with a, an entire fleet of, you know, technically Gen 3 and yeah. previous generation reactors. Right. You know, the ones that we're building today are orders of magnitude safer than they were previously. And right. So, yeah, there's a, there's a great case to be made for it. And I would, you could even take it, a, one could even take it a step further, that even those things that even those of us who support nuclear thought might be dangerous are, are turn out not to be as dangerous what, as what folks thought it might have been. Right. Like across the board, that, that's not to say it's not a technology that needs to be respected and doesn't need to have some amount of regulation and all those things that that's all goes without saying but it's an extra, that 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 safety remains a reason not to build nuclear is a, is bankrupt that yeah. makes no sense and I, and I think and, and it's not just in terms of the generation but I think to go back to your you know your question previously about you know spent fuel and and waste management uh, you know, 
that's one of the questions I think that you know, people get when they talk about building new nuclear plants. What about the waste? Right. The waste is safe, just as safe as well. I mean, we've we've we have never had a death occur from the transport of spent nuclear fuel. We have never had an accident with spent nuclear fuel. It's been safely stored at the facilities where it's used for a very long time. It's been proven that if we were to transport it to uh, either an interim storage facility or a permanent repository. That, or a and, reprocessing and facility. Or a reprocessing facility. Uh, and there was an accident that it would not cause detrimental damage and we wouldn't have mass deaths. We wouldn't have mass injuries. Right. Uh, and people just don't realize that. You know, it, it, People have talked about nuclear safety for so long. I don't even like talking about safety because as far as I'm concerned, it's just it's inherently safe now. It is. But, you know, j- just from this is a, um, a microcosm for sure. But just in our, with our interactions in the podcast, we've had people who reach out to us and say, we need to hear more about safety because that narrative is still out there. Even though we all know the truth. Well, well lot... when I do talk about safety, I talk about how safe it is. Yeah. And people don't realize it. And yeah. so that's that I think is the educational factor that needs to happen uh, is the industry overall. And I think that's actually a big part of my job and my organization's job is to is to really start spreading the word more than we have in the past about how safe nuclear generation is and how safe uh, you know, nuclear waste is. Uh, and whether we whether we ship it off to a repository or we re- we reprocess it, it's an inherently safe uh, thing to do either way. And yeah. is there a better way for us to think about exposure exposure to radiation? I've I've always thought that it was kind of a cute idea. You have like n- nuclear protesters on site, and you go up and you, you like hand out free bananas, and you explain <laughs> later like how much radiation they just ate because banana has like radioactive potassium isotope or something. Or ask them if they've ever had an X-ray. Exactly. Because or you, taking you're, a flight you're, you're, or whatever. I'm I'm curious. Is there is there a handy way? How do you approach that topic? Do you do you use the the banana measure or how how do you do it? Well, I I, I say this to people. You know, think about it. You know, and if you're my age, then you probably had a number of them throughout your life. But you know, think about all the X-rays you have had in your life. You know, the the culmination of all of that radiation from all the X-rays you've ever had is much higher than what your radiation exposure would be if there, you know, if, if spent fuel rods fell off a, mm-hmm. a train car. Um, it's, it's, it's just not something and to it's worry like about. every year at the dentist, they x-ray your head. I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> exactly. we're okay with that. Exactly. And, 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 you know, I think once people realize that, uh, their support for nuclear grows. And I think that's actually why the support is shifting, uh, because more and more people are starting to realize that we've we've had this many decades of uh, you know operating fleet working fine. We've stored the, we've stored spent fuel for so long. Nothing's ever happened. Um, so I think people are beginning to, to realize that there's really not an issue there in terms of safety. Now we're coming up to the end here. We always run out of time and don't get all the topics to all the topics I want to. I want to make sure we touch on this one. Uh, we, we touched on it, but I want to go a little bit deeper, which is the international aspect yeah. of it. Todd, could you tell us why? It's important for U.S. companies to engage with the global nuclear industry. Maybe talk about and a little bit of how that happens. Like, do do we partner? Do American companies partner with foreign companies? Just talk to us a little bit about that foreign engagement and why it's important. Yeah, well, I mean, just not only because of what we talked about previously with, uh, you know, being able to, you know, compete against Russia and China. But, you know, our companies need to be out there because, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, when you – 
when a U.S. company has a deal with a foreign partner or a foreign country to build nuclear infrastructure, those are 100-year-plus relationships. Uh, and if China or Russia or any other country is able to maintain those relationships, that means we're not. And so, you know, in terms of more jobs in America, uh, you know, a better economy for America, that, that's in and of itself a reason for our companies to be out there trying to sell their, you know, their technologies overseas. Um, we have a great, I think, in terms of what the United States does do well, uh, you know, from a government perspective, we've got a, a great, my, one of my former agencies, the Department of Commerce, the International Trade Administration works very hard. They've got uh, economic counselors in every embassy across the world just about uh, looking for market opportunities in the countries that they're in, talking to our member companies about what those opportunities are. And then our member companies in turn will you know, have conversations with those folks mm -hmm. that are the decision makers. And so I think from a finding and developing market opportunities, we are in a very good position. Um, because the advanced nuclear industry is really so new, I mean, some of these designs have been around for decades and no one has commercialized them. But now as we're starting to do that, we have a lot of startups, we have a lot of people who are running these companies that don't have international experience, that haven't done this sort of thing before. And I think, you know, from my perspective and the work that I've done, I think it's good for me to be in the position that I'm in because I can talk to our member companies mm -hmm. about how they can do just that. But it's incredibly important for our companies to be out there internationally, not just because of the financial gains that they can make, but because we're creating those relationships and we're really helping build infrastructure in other countries that is not as, you know, particularly animus as it could be if they worked with other partners, as I talked about before. So uh, international space is a very important place to be. The market internationally is going to be incredibly large, much larger than it will be here domestically. And that's obviously another big reason for the U.S. to be focused on that. Yeah. Um, are, from a policy standpoint, do you have anything specifically that would make exporting easier, like from a regulatory standpoint, like 810 reform or yeah. anything like that? Are there things that you want to... Yeah, so 810 start? reform is important. It's actually something that USNIC is working on right now. Uh, and we're doing that in conjunction with NEI and ANS. Um, but, you know, we have to figure out how we can make it as easy as possible uh, for our companies to do business overseas. And obviously, there are issues with nonproliferation, and we need to make sure that we handle those issues. But, you know, it needs to be easier than it is right now for companies and countries to get together, uh, especially in countries where they haven't had a nuclear program or, or had any sort of uh, nuclear infrastructure built. It's just we, so yeah. Eight ten reform is a is a big important part of that. Eight ten is 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 part of the regulatory structure that governs um, how U.S. companies export uh, peaceful nuclear technology. That's right. It's uh, it, there's section one two three of the Atomic Energy. Um, Act, which provides the the big governing framework, and there's Section 18, which is or 810. Um, so there are a handful of these different, different different regimes out there, which I would argue, for the most part, um, are too onerous. I I actually like one two three. I think one two three is really good if taken at the letter of the law. I think it's often expanded to be more cumbersome than it needs to be. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, it, it's and it's it's a it's a long process actually too to try to get a one two three agreement with a country. Yeah, and so you know, I think recognizing that the State Department um, is really starting to push what they're calling the first program for small modular reactors, which would allow countries that don't have a one two three agreement to be able to start those conversations about. You know, how do we get into the nuclear business? How do we develop a nuclear program of policy in our country? 
uh, without necessarily having already signed a one, two, three agreement. So that's great. Uh, and that's in the part right of direction. us being competitive it's because right. the Russians and Chinese, they can just throw them in there willy nilly. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they don't care as much as uh, right. about regulations as right. we do. So, you know, it's, it's much easier for them to go out and try to, to try to sell their pro, uh, products overseas. Well, with that, we are out of time. Todd, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's great to be here. And, uh, and thanks for the opportunity again. Now, Travis, you always yell at me that I shut things down before asking you if, if you have any final words. You have about five seconds. <laughs> I think the only note that I took that I wanted to bring up is a philosophical one about if you are an environmentalist, why should you care about power density? Why should you care about nuclear energy and the power density that it brings? It's this eco-modernist approach where, yes, you want a high-energy society, high-energy lifestyle, but you still want to preserve the natural environment. I realize I'm starting to sound like a, a salesman, but uh, but that's why we, that's what makes that's one of the many things that makes nuclear energy awesome. There's so many angles. It yeah. makes sense it from is. a lot of and, different and, angles. And I know I know we're close on time, but let me just say this to to to, to sum up. I had a conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, a foreign ambassador to the United States whose country runs almost exclusively on renewable resources. Uh, and he said, we don't need nuclear there. Uh, I t tell me why I should use nuclear. And I said, well, how many solar farms are you building? How many wind farms are you building? How much land are you utilizing? Because if you use nuclear, you're going to utilize a whole lot less yeah. than you are if you're doing solar and wind. And, and his ears perked up, and I think I convinced him within 15 his seconds. He might need to look at the, the how much land question. His answer was probably all of it. Exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day today to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And if you didn't like us, as always, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. Travis, Todd, thank you both very much. Did great. Both of you did a great job. So there you go, folks. Travis, you have one last task. Remember to tell our people where to email us at. The Power Hour at heritage.org, and you can find us anywhere you get your podcast. There you go, everyone. Thank you again. See you next time.